1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. We are glad to have uh, Melissa Aranchik with us. She is an associate professor at Rutgers University in the School of Communication and Information. She is the author of a book called Branding the Nation, the Global Business of National Identity, published by Oxford University Press in 2013. Uh, Melissa's current research and teaching address um, issues related to media and political communication, media theory, critical methodologies, Promotional cultures and writing as craft and as profession. Her new book, co-authored with Maria Spinoza, is this, is is called "A Strategic Nature: Public Relations and Politics of American Environmentalism," which was published by Oxford University Press in two uh, in twenty twenty two. It critically examines the public relations as a social and political force that shapes both our understanding of environmental crises. Uh, and also our responses to them. Melissa, glad to have you with us.
0: Thank you so much, Morteza. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: Um, tell us a little about yourself, how you became a professor of media studies, how you became interested in uh, what you're doing now, which is media studies? Sure. Yeah. Um,
0: well, yeah, so it's it's a very... Um, winding road, shall we say? Um, since I was small, I was always interested in advertisements and commercials. If I watched TV, I would spend more time watching the commercial than the TV show. And in high school, I bought a book about advertising by David Ogilvy, a British ad man, uh, very prominent in the uh, 20th century who founded what became one of the largest American ad agencies at that time and really transformed the way people did advertising and thought about advertising, especially in that post-war 20th century. I was really fascinated by how ads created worlds around them. It just seemed to me like such a creative medium, such an interesting way to tell stories. And I remember studying that book by David Ogilvy uh, very carefully and then in the 90s, I ended up getting a job in an advertising agency. Um, I'll spare you the details of how that happened, but it was also a very complicated and um, not expected path. But I got this, uh, what felt like a dream job at the time. I was working as a copywriter in this advertising agency in Montreal, in Canada, where I'm from. And it was a fantastic experience in many ways, but it also then raised a lot of questions for me about the mechanics of publicity and especially the impact of publicity on the publics they communicated with. And that fascination carried over into my doctoral dissertation. I went to um, New York University and did a PhD there studying um, advertising and then eventually um, studying branding. I discovered that there was this phenomenon called nation branding whereby countries, national governments were hiring branding consultants to help them create a new national identity for international audiences. And that too, that just fascinated me. And that ended up becoming the topic of my doctoral dissertation. And then my first book, Branding the Nation, where I interviewed and traveled to many different countries and ended up creating 12 case studies of different countries and their branding campaigns, but especially not just the campaigns, but why, why were national governments working with branding consultants? What did they think this was going to do for them? Why were they spending so much money on this stuff? You know, and what were the outcomes uh, of these campaigns? So it was a very critical look, I ended up being quite, quite critical of um, national attempts to reassert the nation state in a global um, environment, a globalizing culture. Um, so that's, you know, I would say my whole career has really been devoted to thinking about critiques of promotional industries writ large. And when I say promotional industries, I'm really talking about advertising, um, but also branding, marketing, uh, and most recently public relations. Um, Just these are industries I think that most people know very little about. They're not household names the way the names of corporations might be or or other kinds of institutions. And yet they have enormous power to influence and inform how we think about politics and culture.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, uh, lots of interesting points, uh, especially about advertising advertisements. I guess uh, post-war era was the kind of a, cons- there was this consumer market and naturally nature was also commodities. But that's something that we have started. We have more recently started to think about. And I'm, I'll definitely ask you about that. And uh, what you said about national identity, so you have given me actually another book to read. <laughs> uh, I remember I read something. It was an article about um, England in the in, in 19th century, how they started writing kind of tea historiography to brand tea as as, as, a, as an emblem of uh, of their national identity. Fascinating topic. And I guess I can see now where this book uh, comes in. So tell us how did this book come about?
0: Right. And how did I get interested in the environmental question too? Exactly. One one of the things, in fact, that struck me about that first book, uh, Nation Branding, was how little the question of environmental awareness came up. In other words, when countries were looking for brands, they they never really spoke about the environment as a... uh, commodity or as something uh, according to which they could brand themselves. So that that insight came later for, for this book, A Strategic Nature. So what happened uh, with this book was that I had started writing a little bit after the first book, Branding the Nation, came out about uh, the tar sands in Canada and um, how that was factoring into Canadian national identity. Um, the tar sands—some people call them the oil sands—but a more critical way of saying it is the tar sands—is um, a very uh, dirty form of oil that has that requires a lot of extractive effort, and so it's very uh, labor-intensive, and it's also very environmentally destructive. And I had been writing about how Canada was investing in the tar sands, but was um, and was trying to use it as a basis of national identity, but was also trying to advance. Um, its self-understanding as a country that cared about the environment. And so I was talking about that contradiction, uh, but really still, again, from the point of um, promotion, from the point of view of promotion. Um, so for this book, what happened was um, I heard from the environmental sociologist, Robert Brule, Bob Bruhl, who's um, currently at, at Brown University in the United States. And he was interested in the links between promotional culture and climate change, specifically, So, we ended up collaborating on a grant proposal that was successful and that kind of launched us into even more conversations and a couple of publications we did together. The co author on this book, um, Maria Espinoza, was initially my research assistant. She's a PhD candidate currently in uh, sociology at Rutgers University. Um, But she just developed so many great ideas for the book that um, I invited her to come and be a co author, which was really. Such just such a great collaboration. And so we were um, borrowing from and, you know, exchanging a lot with Bob uh, and working together to do as much research as we could on the promotional culture around environmental issues. And here I started to see some very interesting patterns between early 20th century ideals of the public Um, And concerns about the public, um, you know, how the public was um, not being taken as seriously as it needed to be in the early 20th century and problems of of the public, um, such as those developed, those ideas developed by John Dewey and the philosopher and journalist Walter Lippmann. And uh, these ideas of the public and public problems and then the growing American consciousness about the environment as a public problem. Um, Of course, in the early 1900s, where this this book begins, there was no unified concept of the environment as, um, you know, a set of concerns about industrial pollution or protecting endangered species or resource scarcity or anything like that. There was no, um, as the eco-critic Lawrence Buell puts it, no toxic discourse at that time. Um, But there were ways that the environment came Into focus in that time period for publics. And those periods were when people would notice in their communities that the air around the factories going up in their neighborhoods was making it hard to breathe, or when fish died in their local river. And, you know, as we well know now, the major manufacturing industries of that time that were growing up um, in the United States, like coal or steel rail timber you know they were these are very dirty industries and these companies these industries knew that they needed to maintain the good favor of the communities in which they operated and so a number of them hired publicists or press agents as they were known at that time to help improve their reputation in the communities where they were operating by putting favorable news about these companies into the local news or appealing to the government to help give them um, certain kinds of aid or or assistance with um, their corporate endeavors. Uh, It so happens that uh, it was not only companies that were involved in this publicity, but also the federal government. Um, They developed quite an extensive publicity arm around this time in the early 20th century. Um, They prepared pamphlets and manuals and uh, news pieces and public events even um, educational materials like textbooks and school curricula to promote forestry. Forestry policy uh, was very new at that time. The science of forestry was very new. It had come from from Europe into the U.S. And uh, this idea was that, you know, they had to promote forestry as something that the American public wanted, something that was good for the American public. So once we started to get a handle on that story, and understand how it connected to much later stories, much more recent stories about PR and climate change, we thought, you know, we can draw a through line from the early 20th century through today. We really see, and we kept seeing as we, you know, went, went into all kinds of archives to do this research, that there was an intertwined relationship between environmentalism and publicity. And, what we are trying to do with this book then is to trace that relationship through time to show how the concept of the environment has been mediated for us throughout all of that time. Um,
1: and, and I guess that's why you, you, in the book you mentioned that the press agents or public relations, as we know to them, were the people who kind of incorporated the big, these big companies or big corporations with soul to give them like a human face as, as if they're not really doing any damage to the environment.
0: Right. And
1: it's a, uh, uh, between, beginning of 20th century, I guess, still a lot of people had that romantic idea of nature, which was a legacy of British romanticism. And I read somewhere that uh, the preservation effort in the United States was a legacy of that British romanticism. People like John Moore were very influential in that area. Right. Um, <laughs> great. So let's, let's talk about PR. Uh how do, do you def- because you know people generally have a very negative view of PR, but in the book you're arguing that PR we, we need to consider it also as a part of a democratic society. But tell us what is the definition of PR and uh, you have this excellent phrase epistemic community. PR is an epistemic community that they manage the information. So tell us a little about that.
0: Yes. Um, public relations actors as an epistemic community, is one of the two, I would say, main ideas we are really trying to put forward in this book. Um, So epistemic communities, that's a well-known concept in uh, in a number of academic fields. And in international environmental governance discussions, there has been quite a bit of discussion about the need for epistemic communities or knowledge communities, communities of experts. Um, and that's because of the way that environmental problems are conceived. They're very often quite complex um, and they're dynamic. They have a lot of different inputs and outputs. It's hard to sort of you know, target or limit w- an environmental problem to one thing, right? There are usually so many different um, influences. And in that context, often the idea of epistemic communities becomes prominent because it We get the sense that we need experts in various fields to help determine the nature of the problem and then what technical requirements or other requirements are needed to deal with the the problem. So epistemic communities are typically defined as self-structured groups that share professional expertise, beliefs, and common objectives for influencing normally public policy. And epistemic communities are not normally um, official authorities on policymaking, but they shape policy in very important ways by, as I said a moment ago, defining the issue at stake, and then also providing standards or normative guidance um, that you can't get otherwise. So that's a long way of of getting at the idea of, you know, what what does that have to do with, with public relations? Well, one of the goals in this book is to show that public relations consultants constitute themselves an epistemic community. Their role is as knowledge producers, um, and that's a very different conception of public relations consultants than I think we typically have. When we think about PR consultants or ad agents or um, you know branding consultants and all that, we we don't tend to think of them, I mean, sure, we think of them as creative, but we don't tend to think of them as inventing the ideas that get sold. I think typically, we think of the client, whether that's a company or a government or another institution, they have something they want to sell, they have an idea they want to put out, or a product. um, And they come to an, an advertising agency or a PR firm. And they say, well, we want to, we want to publicize this. And then the PR consultant or other are just like a neutral channel of information. And they sort of pass that message through and maybe they know the right places to promote it or they know, you know, a great image to go along with it, but they don't themselves have the innovative um, or production potential. So what we're trying to do when we say that PR consultants are an epistemic community is to actually undo that myth because we really have seen it as a myth public relations agents have much more power over the ideas that get created around a concept than we have traditionally assigned to them. Um, You know, now I I should maybe say a word about what writing on public relations does in in the academy. I mean, to the extent it's taken seriously at all, because I think for a long time promotional industries, I mean, you didn't even consider what public relations was, was about. Um, You know, you would have, Well, okay. So if I divide it into categories, a lot of writing about public relations is administrative. In other words, it's about um, work, you know, helping practitioners develop best practices. Um, For instance, you know, do their job better or develop ethics around what they do and so on. And that's, even that is very contained in public relations departments in American colleges. It's not, it's not actually a very international phenomenon, I think, to teach public relations in schools, but in the U.S. that's, that exists. To the extent that we have more critical approaches to public relations, and of course Habermas is, is one who has written about public relations and the structural transformation of the public sphere, um, but others tend to treat public relations like propaganda and then ultimately dismiss it on that basis, like to say, okay, it's, it's spin. Right or or it's propaganda. So it's therefore it's false. It's you know and it's not to be taken seriously as information. In fact, rather it will be characterized as obfuscating information, hiding the true information that's you know underneath. Um, so we're trying to do something really different, and um, you know I have to hope that my the readers will agree that we achieved um, <laughs> we achieved this. Um, We want to say that public relations are knowledge producers. We want to say that they are not just value-neutral intermediaries of existing knowledge, but rather value-driven social agents who produce knowledge. And then we also want to say that public relations is not about obfuscating the truth necessarily, but it's about creating legitimacy for certain ideas. Um, Let me me say a little bit more about that. Um, When we say that public relations actors form an epistemic community, we are trying to look at the ideas that they develop and how they embed these ideas into political and cultural contexts, into policy and into social norms and standards. So rather than seeing it as anti-democratic or as working against democracy. We see it as incorporating aspects of democracy and in fact, working within institutions of democracy and principles um, of say, participation, transparency, or accountability to produce the kind of cultural legitimacy or political legitimacy that's required. Um, One thing that PR agents are very, very good at doing is at researching and understanding the context in which they're operating, so that they can insinuate their ideas in such a way as to make them seem part of the contextual fabric. Um, If I give you an example to make this concrete. During the energy crisis in 1975 in the United States, Congress passed um, what was called a CAF law, which CAF stands for Corporate Average Fuel Economy, so C-A-F-E, and this law was to regulate auto emissions standards. The law would affect especially heavy and large motorized vehicles. Um, In the mid-1980s, the authority to adjust those emissions standards resided with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So corporate leaders who were you know, not wanting to have these restrictions on auto emissions, you know, you can imagine GM and Ford and other big auto companies who didn't want these restrictions um, because it was preventing them from making the big gas-guzzling cars and trucks that were um, big money makers. They wanted to convince the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to relax the standards. So here we have a. Uh, PR consultancy, um, uh, the public relations counselor E. Bruce Harrison um, and his company, which I'll speak more about him shortly. He got an assignment from the Motor Vehicles Manufacturers Association, a big trade association, to help them relax these standards or convince these various authorities to relax the standards. So Harrison formed a group called the Coalition for Vehicle Choice. This was a group of companies, auto manufacturers and others, funded by the Motor Vehicle Manufacturers Association, to reframe the debate. They, Harrison and his PR firm understood very clearly that if you continue to debate fuel efficiency and energy and environmental protection, you would never win because the, the logic was always that, you know, you, you should not have these emissions, However, if you reframe the debate from one of fuel efficiency to one of consumer choice or consumer preference, now you have a different terrain on which to operate. Because in the 1980s, the idea of consumer power was very strong and the idea that consumers should have a lot of choice in the marketplace, that they should be able to choose to drive whatever kind of car they wanted. Um, And it appears in the 1980s, you know, reinforced by Harrison's polling, you know, public opinion polling, that people wanted large gas guzzling cars, that they saw that as a sign of status, or they felt there was kind of protection, or whatever. So, you know, we're not at all surprised that once the CAF law was framed in terms of a restriction on consumers right to drive any car they wanted. Um, the CAF adjustment went through and the admission standards were relaxed. So that's a a long story, but a great way of, I think, getting across that idea of how public relations insinuates itself into existing cultural preferences, norms, and standards in society. Now I've talked about one theme this epistemic community but the second major idea we try to put forward in the book which is related to that example i just gave is about public relations as a technology of legitimacy so um, public relations makes certain kinds of knowledge available to us so right the, the knowledge that we can have any car we want <laughs> we should be able to buy any car we want and drive it and that it's a source of our identity or pride or status um, But if we think of public relations at all, um, we tend to think of it as controlling or hiding um, or lying about the truth. I mentioned that a moment ago. But when we start to understand that public relations is, in fact, part of our democracy and not a fetter upon it, that really changes how we understand PR and what role it plays in our society. Because the fact is that public relations contributes in a massive way to our understanding of what it means to be a member of the public today and to be a participant in the public sphere. First of all, you know, if we think of the institutions of news, um, our media today and, and historically our main sources of reliable journalism are incredibly dependent on public relations. Um, We cannot even think of these as two separate industries. These are very imbricated industries, not only because of commercial news organizations and advertising and reliance on, on ads. That's, that's one thing. I'm talking more about how public relations um, issues, press releases to journalists, which they then use to help them develop story ideas or understand complex technical issues uh, or find sources for for commentary, find expert sources. Um, Considering public relations as a technology of legitimacy instead of as a set of lies or propaganda helps us look at how um, to take an early 20th century example. The idea of environmental conservation came to seem more pragmatic, more realistic and more feasible Than the idea of environmental preservation. So as you mentioned earlier, Morteza, that romantic ideal of, um, you know, the environment is something that ought to be preserved and and set apart from us. In the early 20th century, there was a big debate over whether nature was something to behold and protect, as in uh, national parklands, that's the preservation argument, or something to exploit for human benefit, like the conservation argument and the forestry. So chapter one of our book explores this so-called debate between or battle between preservation and conservation. And we look at how the federal government um, under then President Teddy Roosevelt, and his chief forester, Gifford Pinchot, worked to promote the idea of conservation, and in the process, make its opposite idea, national preservation seem irresponsible. You know, we need this land. We need this water. It's important for the national welfare. How could you prevent the public from having access to this land or this water by sealing it off in some sort of parkland and, you know, restricting access to it? This has to be accessible to everyone. That's the American way and so on. So right from that early story, we get a sense of how um, public relations through the efforts of Pinchot, who is a master publicist, (laughs) Um, was instrumental in putting forward one idea as legitimate and one idea as illegitimate or as not in the public interest. So that's, that's what we're talking about when we say a technology of legitimacy. Legitimacy is such an interesting concept to me because it's not really about whether something is true or false. It's really about how it uses concepts of truth or falsity to advance the authority of the person making the claims, um, it operates via a set of strategies that are very strongly embedded in context, which again is one one of the big themes of this book.
1: There were lots of great examples you brought up, uh, very eye opening and very sad at the same time. And I guess uh, our, I mean, we 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 can still relate to them in many ways. I personally feel that there has been a lot of attention or let's say shift of focus on individuals and their role in environmental uh, disasters or environmental plights rather than big corporates who are actually doing the damage. So, mm-hmm. yeah, my my carbon footprint, you know, is important, but I don't think it's doing a lot of, I mean, as much damage as, as big corporates. And, and we have a lot of us have, again, shifted our focus on that consumer choice that you mentioned, buying organic food regardless of the process that that organic food is produced, which is sometimes even more environmentally damaging. Exactly. Uh, I mean,
0: think about even recycling as something that individuals should do. You know, it's not like there's something, it's not like there's anything wrong with recycling. But what is one household's recycling going to be compared to the kinds of footprints that major fossil fuel companies are
1: putting forward? And I think lastly there was this uh, in California. They, they came up with this brilliant idea to have those plastic balls. I think they released those plastic balls on into a, into a lake. It covered the surface, which prevented water evaporation. But again, a couple of years later, there was this research by some really reputable environmental scientists, and they came to the conclusion that the water that is used to produce those balls was those plastic balls was more than the amount of water. To the that that it would that they would save right. so there is this always right. this economy uh, right. economic factor going on uh, in, in the book you also talk about some of this um apart from manipulating knowledge uh, and i must say that before reading your book i uh, tended to kind of dismiss pr as as an arm of propaganda which i guess goes back to the early 20th century but anyway uh but yeah you're right they they, they are active producers of knowledge. And apart from that, they also have their own strategies of silence. Uh, Can you talk a little about that? What are some of those strategies of silence?
0: Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting dimension of um, public relations as a technology of legitimacy. One way to ensure legitimacy for your ideas is to ensure that other ideas that might counter it or offer a different story never come to the surface. So, in your example, Morteza, that you just gave with the balls, plastic balls on the water, it would, you know, the people who create that as a publicity stunt or as a way of advancing the legitimacy of that strategy hope that no one will do that study to find out that the amount of water used to create those plastic balls is greater or more damaging or somehow pollutes the water more than the other, the, the water that's already there. So, that's. I mean, that's just a very straightforward example of strategies of silence that public relations is is so good at. Um, when public relations actors create environmental knowledge, they have a very particular idea of who the knowers are and who is meant to know that information. So another way to have a strategy of silence is to not include certain kinds of people in that category of knowers or knowledge. And maybe the most important one, you know, the glaring one that we have to mention is the, the suppression of native peoples in contemporary discussions about the environment. Um, you know, that's perhaps the, the most important strategy of silence that has been embedded in public relations tactics since the beginning of the 20th century. We mentioned earlier, um, you, you mentioned John Muir, and I mentioned Gifford Pinchot you know, these people had very problematic ideas about Native peoples um, and about who should have access to their resources or or the land that they were trying to protect or the forestry techniques that they were trying to, to develop. And it did not at all include um, the Native peoples who, of course, had been on the land long before any of this stuff came, came to light. Um, our, our book really doesn't to be honest, do justice to that story. Um, you know, we do make sure that it's mentioned. It's very important. Um, but there's, you know, that that I think that's that just has to be said um, because I think we continue. I mean, and maybe I should put it this way. One reason we think it's so important to demonstrate the interrelationship of PR and the environment over such a long period of time is to show how long it's been that, that story of the role of native peoples and the environment as, as a, the most important people who should be the knowers who should be the knowledge givers have been suppressed over that entire time period. Um, so that's you know an unfortunate um, effect of talking about this as a pattern is to recognize that this is a pattern we've had for a very long time. Uh, uh,
1: you just reminded me of an article I read uh last year i live in australia and there are a lot of mining companies here and they are they they, they donate a lot of money as funding to universities for research about the technology of mining or uh, whatever the technical knowledge is but uh the the article was that a lot of early researchers in universities they do they are mainly environmental scientists um they also do research about the uh, impacts of these companies on the nature and also on the landscape and of course the indigenous people but that information or that research is written but it's not allowed to be published because if it's a, i mean it's not they don't directly tell them but you're if you're a casual academic you come up with your research but if that university is going to publish something that for example the so-called Mining companies doing a lot of damage to the environment, they just lose their funding because that company doesn't like to be put into negative light. And uh, so the the whole article was about how how much research is out there that is not allowed to be, not directly, but a lot of academics kind of self-censor or they don't go towards those research topics because the money is coming from those companies. There are PR agents there and you simply can't say anything negative about them because if you do, your university loses money. And the university needs that funding. So there's this very complicated mechanism. Or what you said about Native people, again, reminded me of, I used to live in New Zealand as well, about uh, Maori knowledge, the indigenous knowledge of the land, which is important. But unfortunately, a lot of people simply dismiss it as as, uh, superstition, which is not the case. It's just that indigenous knowledge of the land, they have lived there for centuries and um, they have come up with inventive ways of of, of living in in the landscape that sometimes might be harsh. Uh, Let's go to chapter four, which is, I guess, one of the most important chapters of your book with the post-war era. And that was around the time, 1970s, when when the idea of environmentalism was being consolidated. We had Rachel uh, Carson's great book, Silent Spring. We have more awareness about the use of DDT. Um, so give us a little background about environmentalism in uh, that area and how PR was involved uh, or how PR consolidated its footprint as uh, the experts who transformed that, uh, that knowledge of the environment.
0: This chapter, chapter four, uh, which is called PR for the Public Interest, is so important to the course of the book. Um, and that time period um, are, is the, of the 1970s and 1980s are key decades for the consolidation and expansion of both environmental concerns, but also of public relations. Dozens of public relations firms were joining forces in this time period to reposition their corporate clients as active participants in pursuit of the public interest. And that included, uh, the environment as a public problem. So, The way they did this was to, as we were discussing earlier, to work through established democratic principles. In this case, the democratic principles were those of consensus, of accommodation, and of compromise. The goal that public relations agents had in this time period was to make its clients' voices heard in the public and political debates over environmental problems. Um, So they needed to convince us that companies should have a say in those conversations, that they deserved a seat at the table, and that they were willing to work with the other parties to the conversation. At this point, environmentalists, um, environmental agents within government agencies, the government itself, to arrive at a workable compromise. So... Just to set the stage, uh, you mentioned Rachel Carson. Let me me back up to the 1960s to kind of um, help explain. So in the 1960s, the public interest movement in the United States emerged around a wide variety of issues, um, consumer rights, um, environmental rights, uh, and individual rights to protest against government decisions that did not seem to be about the people that they were supposed to serve they were also protesting against industrial overreach in matters like environmental protection that they felt were all about economic growth and not about citizen protections. So the 60s, as many of us know, were a time of major reform and major regulatory change. And in this time of reform, citizen groups wanted the reforms to be in the public interest, not in the self-interest of companies or government. So this time period, you know, in the late, as the 1960s accelerated, was an era of some of the most intense environmental regulations in the United States history. I mean, probably the most intense, not just before, but also since. Between 1967 and 1972, there were four major federal environmental laws passed and five national environmental organizations established. Um, There was the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969. There were some key amendments to the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, was founded in 1970. Um, The Union for Concerned Scientists came up in 1969 and, and so on. Um, The first Earth Day on April 22nd, 1970 attracted 20 million people to the street. So this was, you know, this was not just a little movement. This was really a massive transformation uh, in American culture when it came to the environment. And as a result, or, you know, perhaps in tandem with all of these developments, industry was in a crisis, Um, It was accused by everyone, uh, essentially, of ignoring the environmental impacts of its output, and they were facing major changes to their means of production. Um, This was also an era when citizen groups, in the name of the public interest, were beginning to understand that they could bring companies to court and win in court when it came to uh, environmental rights, rights of citizens to have the environment be protected. So, by the 1970s, the public interest movement had really succeeded to a large extent in convincing the American public that companies needed to be regulated and controlled. Um, it took them a while to figure out how to respond, but they hit on an idea that, in retrospect, was incredibly potent and that really still structures the political conversation today about the role of private companies and the private sector more generally. In dealing with environmental problems, and that was for companies to convince us that they were acting in the public interest.
1: And uh, and around that time, PR started also promoting this idea of environment. Uh, sorry, they, they they promoted an anti-environmental agenda as as rational and logical.
0: Right. This was uh, this was <laughs> I mentioned that this the keys were compromise, consensus, and accommodation. So this was a key way uh, that public relations agents did it. They would argue that since they too were acting in the public interest, that they could arrive at a reasonable or workable compromise that would satisfy all all parties to, to the transaction. So in order to do that, they had to, of course, they had to convince the public that what they were doing was in the public interest. And so they needed to... Um convince us that what they were doing was rational and legitimate. There were really three ways that they went about this. One, um, and by the way, all three of these are still very much in play today. So it's just kind of interesting. You know, this is, we're talking about the 70s or 80s, 50 years ago, um, but that's that's still like precisely what's going on right now. So one was to create... Um, organizational forums, coalitions, and standards on their own that would be funded by or otherwise supported by or even formed within companies, but that would appear to be um, helping the environmental cause in some way. So one of these was to create um, what are called in the business issue coalitions or issue management. So that means you would take something like the Clean Air Act, um, and it's, you know, there were a series of amendments to the Clean Air Act o- over the 20th, course of the 20th century. So what um, a public relations firm would do would be to gather together a variety of different companies in different sectors, polluting sectors almost exclusively, that were concerned that the amendments to the Clean Air Act would somehow put a fetter on what they were trying to do on their own business, you know, that it would somehow restrict or hamper them. Once they got this coalition together, this coalition would spring into action and create their own scientific research, their own publicity and information for the public. Um, They would they would come to town hall meetings. They would arrive and give testimony um, on legislative hearings. They would put news stories in the press Offering their point of view. And they always did this, again, in the spirit of compromise, in the spirit of we hear you, we want to work with you. And so let us share our views with you so that you can also hear what we have to say because we are also members of the public sphere. We are also part of this democracy and we want to have our say. A second strategy uh, was to get the battles out of the courtroom. So I mentioned. A moment ago, that one of the most effective and impactful strategies that the public interest movement had achieved was to show in court that what companies were doing was not in the public interest. So, of course, for companies to change that, they had to move debates outside of the courtroom and into, as we tend to call it, the court of public opinion instead. So, once something was in the court of public opinion, then you had some room to maneuver. Then you could say, um, as a company, I have a great idea. Let's start a public-private partnership. Let's have a company partner with an environmental organization. We'll work together in a partnership. And, you know, for every donation that is made to this environmental organization, we will match that donation. Or you know, let's have a save the ducks campaign, you know, let's have a public event where we show together on the stage that we're committed to the same kinds of things. So this was another kind of accommodation, so to speak, but it was an accommodation where companies could then make the rules for how these public private partnerships were structured. And by subscribing to those kinds of voluntary initiatives, or, you know, voluntary programs, they could say, look, we're doing something about the environment. Now you don't need to regulate us. We have an environmental program. We're working with the Environmental Defense Fund or the Sierra Club or the, the National Resources Defense Council. So we don't need to be regulated. Um, finally, you know, to talk about extreme accommodation by um, between companies and um, environmental groups trying to become more environmental The goal here was to attain cultural legitimacy through various kinds of sponsorship. And one of maybe the most well known that we document in the book is the sponsorship by Mobile Corporation, ExxonMobil, today, of public television. There's a a long history, and a few others, uh, Richard Kerr, among others, have have written quite extensively about this. And the idea is for a company like Mobile to sponsor a public television show like Masterpiece Theatre was kind of a stroke of genius because it meant, here we are in a publicly funded environment. Um, Here we are sponsoring important public non-commercial television. Here we are operating in the public interest. So it was a way for companies to show that they were bridging the gap, so to speak, between the private interest and the public interest through this ongoing sponsorship. Um, You know, another thing they did, mobile did that was very um, effective was to create advertorials in newspapers. This advertorial is a a portmanteau of advertising and editorial. And this was a several decade campaign that mobile undertook and that many others have undertaken since to create um, a space in the newspaper that was purchased by mobile. So it was not an actual editorial, it was a purchased ad space Usually on the other side of the editorial page, um, that was articulating Mobile's position on
1: political issues.
0: Um, and this allowed them to have a voice and to say that they were operating in the public
1: interest. Uh, um... They actually sound very familiar, I guess, just like you mentioned, right? Those voluntary campaigns, sponsorship programs. That Your book is about the United States, but I guess this phenomenon has become very global because I'm originally from Iran myself, and I see a lot of such uh, such voluntary campaigns and such movements uh, all in the name of, uh, you know, saving the planet. Right. Uh, but the planet's not being saved, right? <laughs> it's just like a smokescreen. <laughs>
0: that's yeah or greenwashing right that's,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the concern yeah and uh you have interviewed people in for your research as well and uh one of the people you've interviewed is E. bruce harrison <clears throat> that you talked about earlier uh tell us a little about him and also the idea of green pr what is green pr and um what was the role of bruce harrison
0: Green PR grew out of this bid for compromise and consensus that was so popular in the '70s and '80s, and as uh, I hope is starting to become clear, it was really about taking control of the environmental narrative. Now, E. Bruce Harrison, I, I don't even—I almost don't know where to start. There's so much to be said about about this central character. Harrison was truly a pioneer in the idea of green public relations, and green, you have to understand, is within very heavy quotes. Harrison started his public relations career at the beginning of the 1960s, working uh, with the Chemical Manufacturers Association uh, in public relations, um, although at that time I think it was called Information Management. The Chemical Manufacturers Association was the major trade association in the United States for the chemical and pesticides industry. Today, it's called the American uh, Chemical Council, I believe. Um, And it just so happens that Harrison started working at the Chemical Manufacturers Association just a few months before Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was published. One of the things Harrison learned very quickly in the aftermath of that book's publication and then the industry response to it, which he helped to orchestrate, was that antagonism can only get you so far. When Rachel Carson's book came out, the Chemical Manufacturers Association, along with a number of other chemical trade groups and companies and and pesticide makers, mounted a PR offensive. They tried very hard to discredit Rachel Carson herself. Uh, they tried to discredit the research she had conducted for the book, and they, they tried to discredit um, everything uh, around the book and the conclusions that it was drawing about the dangers of pesticides in uh, on the American landscape. Over the course of the 1960s, as we've just been discussing, um, people only became more concerned about the environment, not less, and a campaign like that just failed completely. That, that kind of antagonism failed. So when, in the early 1970s, Harrison founded his own public relations firm, E. Bruce Harrison Company, he had figured out that the way to address environmental issues by companies was not through antagonism, but through reason and accommodation and compromise. So <laughs> this is the, the, a growing theme, as you can see. The E. Bruce Harrison Company was not the first company to deal with environmental issues by companies, but it was... The first to specialize exclusively in green PR. Essentially, his job was to put a green cover over corporate activities. Um, This is, you know, some have called this since corporate environmentalism, um, others have called it corporate social responsibility or corporate citizenship. You may have heard of ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Initiatives, or otherwise known as Triple Bottom Line Initiatives. That entire field of environmental action by companies was, I won't say exclusively started by Harrison, but Harrison was a very big player in the creation of those those strategies. And many of those strategies grew out of the work he did with his clients. He had literally hundreds of clients in essentially all of the major polluting sectors in the United States, from coal and mining to tobacco, to um, pesticides and chemicals, to oil, and, and so on. The greatest achievement of Harrison's, in in my opinion, in our book, uh, as we tell it, was to promote the concept of sustainability as a response to environmental problems. And sustainability is such a great word because it's one of those words that you cannot say anything bad about. You know, if something is sustainable, it has to be good. <laughs> and in Harrison's hands, sustainability, and now we're in the late 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s. Sustainability became the watchword for companies looking to shore up their reputation when it came to environmental issues. Um, sustainable development, which had emerged in the earlier than that, much earlier in, in the 1970s and 80s, um, as something that was then taken up by the United Nations in its um, international governance initiatives. Um, this was seen as Uh, very important response to the environmental problems that were increasingly being seen as interconnected and and global planetary. Um, What Harrison and other PR firms succeeded in doing was to transform what environmentalism meant when you said sustainability, or really transform what sustainability meant, I should say. And this was to see sustainability not merely as um, one that made sure that the way that we lived would not exhaust the resources that we had and transform it into something that celebrates environmental protection and economic growth and development at the same time. Um, And this model of sustainability was one that, that, embraced voluntary norms and standards rather than government-imposed norms, like we were saying earlier with public-private partnerships and so on. It was one that embraced the management of the environment instead of the control or protection of the environment. Again, a subtle shift, but one that always allows for economic growth to remain part of the conversation. And you know, when we look at the formation and evolution of this specialized field of green PR, we see that the concept of the environment was shifting. We see that one of the ways that we came to know the environment in this time period was through the information that was provided to us. I mean, how, you know, for many of us, it's such an abstract idea. How else would we apprehend the environment? And this green PR and this notion of sustainability that became anchored in the international governance agenda uh, was a, a version of environment that was very much divorced from our own relationship to nature and our own relationship to the environment. Rather, it was this sort of economized or commodified idea that you know one had to balance environmental concerns with economic ones. So I guess we could say sustainability was the ultimate compromise.
1: And uh, a lot of big oil companies have this program devoted to renewable energies, which is which is like a joke, in many respects. Yeah, uh, For my job, I had to go to a conference last year. It was a business conference anyway. And um, there was this lady representing Shell Company, just as she had a five-minute talk and she was just showing videos of, uh, it was in Australia. So Shell, I guess, was involved from the very beginning, more than 100 years, and but it showed the evolution of the company and the last two minutes was all on renewable energies and, you know, uh, wind power and all that. But they were not saying anything about the shell company itself and how much damage it's doing. And it was hard. Yeah. The whole idea was on sustainability and it's everywhere in business in supply chain in environmental, uh, studies in, in architecture. <clears throat> yeah. It's a big compromise. <clears throat> and, um, it's not only big companies that engage with PR to do a little bit of greenwashing, let's say, but uh climate advocates also engage with PR. So is there any, I don't know, is there any positive side to it or how, how 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 does environmental advocacy try to promote a certain way of thinking about nature? And how does it um let's say change or how does it affect our understanding of nature, our relationship with uh with ecology or nature in general, this human nature relationship?
0: yeah we, we there's a chapter in the book. this was uh, let me, sorry, let me back up for a second. It was really important to us in this book not to just tell a story of good versus evil, of, you know, bad, bad corporations doing terrible things. Not that that isn't the case. Um, it does seem as though that is the case, but more that that's a story we we know or we think we know. We think we know about that um, good versus evil story about environmentalism versus, corporate um, actors and PR. And we wanted to overcome that because that's not just because that story has been told, but because in thinking about public relations as a technology of legitimacy, we wanted to also think about how do climate advocates use public relations as a technology of legitimacy. This isn't a, a technology that is only accessible to corporate influencers or corporate CEOs or their corporate PR. It's also accessible to All kinds of people, and especially now in the digital media environment, any one of us um, can practice public relations, so to speak, in the ways that we can engage with media and produce media um, to get messages across. So in chapter six of the book, we interview climate advocates who make use of PR to get out the message that they are doing um, PR for the planet as one of them put it to me, or that the climate is our client. That was another phrase I heard. And here it it got a little complicated because we found that these climate advocates also saw public relations as a value neutral channel of mediation. So they, you know, just as, um, most of us tend to think of public relations as neutral, so so did these climate advocates think of it as just a way to get their message out. And in showing how environmentalists made use of public relations to do what they were doing, we are really trying to take aim at public relations as a value-free enterprise, which it clearly is not. So, well, what does that really mean? For us, what it came to mean and what we saw in the, the... interviews that we did, was that using techniques of publicity, such as the ones that are institutionalized and well-established in PR, narrows the way you can talk about the environment. It narrows the scope of what you can say about environmental problems or or climate change. It narrows the audiences that you can speak to. Um, It narrows the kinds of messages and the kinds of meanings that, that can be promoted. One way we can think about this is to think of framing, message framing, uh, which is a very big idea in communications scholarship um, and in sociological studies of social movements. Also, a lot of discussion of framing. The idea of framing is that, you know, you, you place the message you're trying to get across into a particular frame. Um, and that frame can be a certain understanding of what environmentalism is. And then you know the narrative fits within that frame. Um. Public relations doesn't care about the frame in the sense that they're not adopting that frame because it's the frame that they deeply believe in. It's about adopting a frame because you think it'll work in that moment, which is exactly what we mean by a technology of legitimacy. (laughs) But what that means then is that um, uh, whether you're a climate advocate or whether you're doing green PR for a company trying to hide its carbon footprint, you're going to, Make use of whatever it takes to get your message across into the particular minds or hearts of the audience you're trying to reach. It's very difficult to maintain your values and principles, perhaps that you hold deeply. Why? Well, I mean, there's several reasons, but one of them is that public relations is kind of a—it's a very blunt instrument. It's very difficult to express nuance or complexity or dynamism. It's more about you know, making a statement and then making it over and over again and then kind of hammering it home because you're in an information environment that is so cluttered and, you know, so overtaken. So what happens is things, you know, I'll give one, one particular example. So what happens is people will try to quantify their carbon usage, for instance, and we can have a much longer conversation about that process in and of itself Some fantastic writing and, and uh, critical work on that. But if you are, are an organization, and you create um, a carbon accounting scheme, it's much easier for you to put that out as a message to say, you know, here, at one level is what we're trying to achieve, and we are three quarters of the way to that level that we're trying to achieve That's summit. That's a message you can put out there. But as many of us know, carbon accounting schemes have quite a few flaws they're often not commensurable one to the other. So, you know, and it's very difficult to get across exactly how you constructed your carbon accounting scheme and how that compares to somebody else's. And it also is very rarely long-term. Another thing that um, public relations is, you know, not so great at is that having a long-term message that they're trying to get across. That's just not how our information environment works. So in other words, What happens to, let's say, a carbon accounting scheme is that it becomes a promotional device. It becomes a way for you to use publicity to say you're doing something, but it doesn't allow you to talk about it over and over again as it changes or to talk about the adjustments you've made over time or to talk about how it relates to other forms of climate accountability. So ultimately, to me... These devices become public relations for the companies that are doing them or the organizations that that are doing them. And so, one conclusion that we draw in the chapter is that when you turn the climate into a client, no matter how pure your intentions were or how morally right your motives are, you're not addressing climate change in the way that perhaps it needs to be addressed. You can't talk about it. Um, in terms of its physical basis, um, its co-location in the atmosphere and the biosphere and other related systems of land, oceans, and air. Like, you're, you're already tuning out if I'm talking that way. You know, it, it really elides the human nature of the problem of climate change. It turns it into something that can be sound sound bit, <laughs> like a sound bite. Um, so even though some even though some of our interviewees said, you know, public relations is about you know we're we're just trying to get people's attention, we're trying to influence them, you know that's we're just trying to get the message out. That ultimately was not successful, um, or it was successful in very very limited ways. Um, so you know it kind of reinforced our point about public relations as a as an ideology as much as a technology.
1: What you said about like measuring carbon footprint through, through data, I guess that's a perfect segue to my next question. Uh, the whole world is just obsessed with the idea of data, especially big data. How does a data-driven approach could solve any problem? Um, but there is also a tyranny in numbers, or in those data models. So uh, how, what does environmentalism mean in the age of big data and how does uh, PR uses uh, use a data-driven approach to, to understand the problems of uh, nature? And I guess it also kind of imposes a certain kind of thinking about nature, which is not necessarily helpful. Uh, and that's the topic of your, the last chapter of your book.
0: Right, so this is um, this question of big data for climate or AI for climate, as it's also now being discussed, was the subject of is the subject of the last chapter of the book. And I, I should say, um, you know, the insider story here is that when we first proposed this book, the reviewers were very confused about this chapter. They really didn't quite see how it fit with the rest of the argument. So. We really insisted, and um, I, I'm so glad that we were able to keep it in, because it really does demonstrate a continuity, again, with this earlier pattern of this interrelationship between environmentalism and mediation, public relations here. So what's going on in, in this case? Well, we we came across um, a series of what were being called data challenges or hackathons or other kinds of events that were encouraging participants to use big data to try to solve public problems. And in this case, climate problems. Um, This was a really, we were quite surprised to encounter this. And so Maria Espinoza and I did quite a bit of um, sort of ethnographic um, investigation and participant observation at a variety of different events. Uh, In addition to several interviews and a ton of um, research, documentary research, trying to get at this phenomenon and, again, why it was happening and and what it meant. So the issue here was that companies, as we all know now, collect our data. When we are on the internet, when we're using our phones, pretty much everything we're doing is being collected. And uh, as we well know, this this data is then used to uh, market to us mainly. Right Or for other reasons that are perhaps more nefarious, but let's leave it at the, the marketing part things. So companies, as we have seen in the news headlines in the last uh, couple of years, are increasingly being threatened with regulation, you know, various kinds of data protections. And the U.S. has far fewer of these data protections than they have in Europe. Europe has done a much better job uh, of enforcing uh, protections of of individuals. But the U.S. has has so far had quite a deregulated environment when it comes to um, technology companies and other companies that collect our data. So one reason we came across for why these companies are holding these events and encouraging the use of data for climate action is for public relations purposes. It's to help to demonstrate to regulators and others who are critical that the data serves a very important and useful function, which can be to help solve public problems such as climate change. So to give you just a couple of examples, um, uh, one data challenge that um, we researched, the company Waze, W-A-Z-E, which is a, a GPS uh, app that many people use to help orient them while they're driving, mapping a mapping app. Uh, Waze was one of the sponsors, and as you can imagine, Waze has quite a bit of data collected on uh, traffic, on you know movement in real time through traffic, on you know where um, people are going and so on. And so they proposed, you know, you could use you the the public or governments or others could use this data in a climate context. Imagine if there were a flood and roads were closed or roads were inundated. In real time, you could redirect people through ways or elsewhere, away from the flooded areas, right? So you could help them be safe. Another example is uh, Facebook. Facebook has actually entered into quite a few partnerships um, with environmental organizations at universities and elsewhere to use their data about where people are in very remote environments. So here too, they suggest there could be some sort of climate help for whether people are moving uh, because of climate, uh, very dangerous climate situations where they are and they are having to relocate. So Facebook is proposing to use its data to help with population settlements. So these are examples that companies give to justify the continued collection of user data. And, you know, just to maybe say a little bit more about this and, you know, why we decided this was a a public relations phenomenon, because it's not as obvious um, at first glance. What the Data for Climate Action movement, as it is known as a movement, uh, reveals is The ongoing preoccupation by the private sector to maintain a positive reputation um, in order mainly, like I said, not to not to be subject to regulation. And this preoccupation drives the development of a lot of their information strategies. So. What started? What I mean, one of the one of the institutions that we paid closest attention to was um, an institution that operates within the United Nations called UN Global Pulse. UN Global Pulse and its partner organizations came to act as brokers for a lot of these data for climate action challenges and events and and uh, systems, and they. they lent the currency or the reputational value of the United Nations to these endeavors. And so companies operating under the umbrella of the United Nations saw tremendous reputational benefits. But unlike what we typically think of when we think of United Nations and environmental protection, you know, their intergovernmental coordination, like with the the major United Nations climate endeavors, This role for the United Nations was really as a broker between private sector and public sector organizations. So they were, in fact, acting as a kind of public relations agent in and of themselves, um, helping to bring all of these different stakeholders together, helping, again, to assume this ideal of participation by the private and public sector, of partnerships, of initiatives, all in the name of helping the climate. Um, and what this ended up doing was promoting the expertise of big data companies in solving climate problems, in you know, bringing, not just bringing them to the table, but having them become part of the epistemic community, having them become the decision makers and the experts when it came to deciding what to do about climate change. So that's why that chapter figures as the last chapter in our book and hopefully continues forward. That um, pathway of what to do about the relationship between public relations and the environment. Uh,
1: I was a bit surprised when you said that the reviewers didn't really see the relationship because when I came through the last chapter, I said, "Yep, that's a perfect way to end this book. <laughs> that that that's actually the new approach to the environment."
0: Well, I'm glad you saw it. It's uh, yeah, it's something that um, we feel we felt really strongly about, and we were also really. It's, you know, it's very hard not to be cynical at the end of a series of research like that. It's very hard to feel like there are still opportunities to turn things around and to develop a more more complex and more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, a more environmentally just relationship between people and the planet that we're on, especially in this time when climate change is now, you know, it's really starting to make headlines in ways that it never has previously. It's starting to be a, a topic that's talked about more and more. And it's uh, the idea that it might be too late is a very difficult uh, idea to think about.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess, uh, maybe in the past five years, people weren't really, I mean, everybody was talking about the environment, but people have started to see the impacts. We in Australia, we had unprecedented bushfires, we have Right now that I'm talking, there are floods in two states, which has heavily impacted people, and it's record floods. I guess in Germany last year, there was, again, an unprecedented flood. It's just headline everywhere with the pandemic. People have started to see how it is an existential threat, which was unfortunately not really taken seriously. And it's going to bite even harder in the upcoming years, especially in the next few decades. And uh, it's already late to act, but never too late. And uh, I guess in the book, you have uh, you have drawn a very dark but sobering picture of how we engage with the environment or those little uh, campaigns or steps that we call environmental friendly. We need to, to be able to problematize them and look at them more carefully to see how it's still being Being, let's say, reconceptualized for for, for people with special interests, maybe.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, one of the conclusions that we try to draw in the book is to say we need, if we keep thinking about public relations as the medium through which we understand the environment, we are really doing ourselves a disservice because what we're doing is thinking of ourselves as audiences who accept certain stories you know that affect us directly and not we're, what we are not doing is thinking of ourselves as a people as as a collective of people who have to work together um, and collaborate to understand this as the public problem of our time and that's um, perhaps we can, by bringing public relations to light and its effects, we can try to reconstruct the environment as a matter of concern by which we are all affected and then privilege it as the
1: ultimate public problem. Dr. Melissa Arancic, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure to talk to you about this book.
0: The same with you, Morteza. It's been really great to talk with you and thank you so much for your time.